0: I want to start out this morning by reading a little bit from um, Psalm number 2, the second Psalm. Psalm 2 is a prophetic psalm um, that kind of serves to put the nations of the world on notice. And so it says this, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's Psalm 2. And and the book of Revelation, um, written centuries after that psalm was originally penned, it reassures us that that warning still applies. Um, the, The passage we're looking at this morning, it's filled with these glimpses of glory, these glimpses of what our world is going to look like when the sun returns and begins to rain. And so as people of faith, we're still waiting for that day. We're longing for that glorious moment when Jesus returns, when he takes charge of this broken down planet and does what no one else on the course of human history has ever been able to do to to bring justice to end evil and to set this broken world right again Um, and of course um, the right side of history which we hear that phrase used so many times these days and we recognize that the right side of history cannot get calculated until history has reached its conclusion that's the only place to tell Um, But the bold and outrageous and audacious claim all throughout scripture is that the right side of history is the one that's aligned around and under the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ. Because coinciding with the beginning of his rule and reign is gonna be the end of every other rule and reign. And uh, so that's kind of what we're gonna look at this morning. We have been, for the better part of the last six months, making our way through what for many is the most avoided book in the entire Bible, the book of Revelation, and we have almost made it to the end. Actually, next week, Father's Day present, at least for myself, is we are going to hit the finish line, and um, if you've been on the journey with us up to this point, um, I hope that uh, even though if you found that this is a dense and a difficult book, I hope that it's also been challenging and relevant uh, to the life that you're living and the things that, that, we, that you're working through. I, I have um, received some really great feedback from a lot of you, and I want to say thank you for that. That means so much. It's so encouraging, particularly in this series, because this has been far and away the most challenging for me to prepare on a weekly basis and to actually come to Sunday with something that actually makes sense and uh, is something that can you know be delivered. Um, but Revelation is a book that was written to help Christ followers make sense of a world that doesn't seem to make any sense. And maybe that's what your world looks like. Uh, We've seen up to this point that we do that not by just anchoring our lives to the here and the now, but by anchoring our lives to what ultimately will be. Uh, Not by just what we look around physically with our eyes and see, but by the unseen realities that are all around us as well. Not by just looking at what's going down here on earth, but extending our vision to see what is also happening in heaven as well. And, and last week, we left off with this very vivid image, the snapshot of Rome going up in smoke. Rome was the idolized empire that back in the first century had been oppressing God's people. And, and back then, it really seemed as if nothing would ever upend the mighty reign of the roman empire it seemed as if she was going to go on forever but what we learn here is that things down here are not quite as enduring as they appear all right and and that may be something you may want to write down this morning Take that home with you. Things down here are not all as enduring as they sometimes seem to be. Point being that the nations are not eternal. Empires all come with expiration dates attached to them. It's only the Alpha and the Omega. He is the only one who is everlasting, and the kingdom that Jesus has established. It's his reign and his rule alone that will endure forever. And so last week, we saw how, how the greed and the pride of the great prostitute, as Rome was nicknamed, um, that's what was going to take her down. And she crashed and she burned. And, and that collapse sets off this series of hallelujahs in heaven, um, so on earth, the earth is crying out in despair, but, but heaven is crying out in praise. And so today we're going to just continue on and uh, read what that sounds like. So we are in Revelation chapter 19 and starting in verse 1, it says this, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, salvation. I'm sorry, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and forever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, great and small. All right, now this is... Believe it or not, the one and only place in the entire New Testament where the word hallelujah shows up, Revelation chapter 19. Um, It's a Hebrew word. Uh, We see it in the Psalms quite a bit, and it never got translated from Hebrew into Greek. It just got imported wholesale, and hallelujah means praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. And this is saying praise him for ending that evil empire, for doing that mighty work of justice that needed to get done. See, when, when justice happens, hallelujah is the appropriate response because justice is so core to the heart of God. Um, justice isn't simply a matter of ending oppression. It's about actually avenging it making what is wrong right again and and so this chorus in heaven is praising God it says for avenging on her the blood of his servants so so Rome had been executing countless Christ followers she lit them on fire, she fed them to the lions and beheaded them, all kinds of brutal, brutal acts. And, and we've seen all throughout this book that the message to the saints has always been, take the hit, take the hit for the sake of Christ, even if it costs you your life. There's, there's never been a call to fight back or to take up arms and the only reason that would ever make any possible sense at all is because if we know that vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? And that is, that is what Jesus, that's what the Lord says. Vengeance is mine. God always tells his people, leave that one to me because he who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine, that also applies to the area of, justice of making those things that are wrong right again and uh, settling the scores and and that is um, the first order of business on Jesus agenda when he returns and that's what this passage is going to go on to describe uh, this this monumental moment in history that all of human history is leading towards that that moment when faith becomes sight and, and Jesus breaks back down into our planet, and and he begins his reign. So here's the thing, is that in order for the righteous reign to begin, the reign of unrighteousness has to end. In order for the establishment of peace, it requires the eradication of evil. And that means that the day of Jesus' return is a day of reckoning. It's a day of justice because the new can't start until the old is, is finished and done away with. So I want you to just keep that in mind as we continue reading and, uh, and see what's, what's next. So it says this as we continue on. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right, we're gonna stop right there and, and look at this, this last and this loudest hallelujah. It leads into the ultimate wedding announcement. This wedding that has been such a long time in coming, it's the wedding where where Jesus the lamb is the the bridegroom, the son of God, and, and his bride is the church, the precious people of God. And it says the bride is, is finally ready. She is aglow in her good works. And, and that is a contrast to the, the haughty harlot that we saw that Rome was last week. And, and all the razzle-dazzle of Rome can't hold a candle to the beautiful bride of Christ the church, the people of God, those whom he redeemed by his blood, who are so precious to the heart of God, precious in the sight of Jesus, right at the center and middle of all of God's plans and his purposes. And so we saw last week that Rome was fueled on things like greed and power and pride, but the church is fueled on sacrifice, faithfulness, and covenant love and and that's what this marriage metaphor is is all about. In fact, it's it's no coincidence that the bride is dressed in white, but we're going to find out in just a couple of verses that the groom is robed in red. Jesus' robe is dipped in blood because it's his sacrifice, his blood that washes his bride clean and makes us white as snow. And And what is so fascinating is that God's ultimate redemptive purposes, his intentions get illustrated through this metaphor of marriage. That's why, you know, in many Christian traditions, marriage is actually considered a sacrament. This is something so holy that they call it a sacrament. The idea being that God actually invented the whole idea of marriage, this lifelong union between husband and wife, for something bigger than just two people, to point to something that goes so far beyond just two physical people. It's this living illustration of the ultimate union between Jesus and his church. So like in marriage, it's the union of two becoming one, and it's within this setting of of unconditional love, of absolute acceptance, of lifelong faithfulness. That's the setting within which the most intimate human connections can get cultivated. But that whole thing is just a foretaste of the ultimate consummation of God's people who are going to get wrapped up in this when Jesus returns. The depth of connection from being united in Christ is going to usher us in into a level of intimacy that we can't even fathom no eye has ever seen it no mind has ever fathomed it and so to those of you who are married here this morning i do want to just ask and 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 pray that you catch a vision for that 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 god's purpose goes so far beyond just two people trying to put up with each other that's that's not just what it's about it it is pointing to the ultimate reality uh, Ephesians 5, it starts out with these instructions for wives and husbands. Here, here's how to work out this one flesh relationship. We need instructions because it's challenging. It's difficult. It takes a lot of effort and hard work. And so Paul is sharing these instructions. But by the time he gets to the end of it, the whole thing has shifted. He says, I, I'm actually, I'm not talking about your marriage. I'm talking about the marriage you see, your marriage is just a peek into this profound mystery of Christ and the church. So keep on working it out. It matters in ways that we may never fully comprehend of this side of eternity. So John is taking all of this in, and uh, it must have just overwhelmed him because he kind of missteps, he kind of falls, he 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 he, he falls down and. He has the intention of worshiping this angel who is delivering this announcement. That's how how astounding this experience must have been to him. But then the angel goes and sets him straight. He says, hey, I am just a servant. You worship God, not me and no one else. And what I love about that whole scene is that it's just a reminder, a timely reminder about grace and the gospel. Right, it's a reminder that uh, we don't exalt John. We don't exalt Christian leaders. We exalt Jesus, and it's only the Christian faith that is able to take those who are, you know, its leading proponents, people like John, and just say, "Yeah, I have no problem telling you, I completely blew it. I was ready to worship an angel. I was ready to idolize," and 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 it's not about John. It's not about angels. It's about Jesus, the bridegroom. And he gets described to us once more here, and uh, we're gonna read that next. It says this, "'Then I saw a heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on it no one else knows but himself.'" and Lord of lords." All right, so this is not the kind of wardrobe that you would expect to find a bridegroom to be wearing, right? You know, Jesus, who we just heard, is gonna get married to the church, his, his, his bride. He is decked out in warrior garb. So, so by the way, just a hint, guys, if you are getting married and your goal is to be a Christ-like husband, do not show up on your wedding day dressed up in battle gear, okay? There are better ways to be a Christ-like husband. But but we understand what's going on here as as, as we're reading this very confusing book of Revelation that along with consummation... Is also confrontation. They're both happening at the same time when Jesus returns. And there's, there's some outstanding issues that Jesus intends to resolve upon his arrival. And, and the issue of justice, the justice on the level of the nations is the first issue that he is intending to address. And so I'm going to just repeat something that we've already said several times throughout the course of this series is the most consistent message I think we've seen throughout Revelation is that Revelation reveals Jesus to us. And, and the idea is that there is nothing any of us need on any given moment of time than to see Jesus for who he is, Right? all of him not some kind of abbreviated version of jesus that fits into some kind of small little box or container that we want to keep him in we need to let him shatter those boxes and behold him for who he is and that's kind of a good definition of what worship is if your version of jesus is always agreeing with you and affirming your 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 presumptions then there's a good chance that you're not worshiping the real Jesus. You're worshiping the Jesus that that fits into your expectations. And another word for that is idolatry. So we let him shatter those and we behold him for who he is. And, And what we see here in this image of him is that he is a mighty conquering king. He is the conquering king. He is the only one who's wise enough and strong enough and righteous enough to rule the nations and set them straight. Do any of you know, as you look around the world, as you watch the news, that our nations, our world is messed up. They are not set straight. We have got leaders. We've got people in positions of leadership who are messing up our world. And uh, Jesus is presented to us here as the one who's going to fix that problem. And the ruler of the nations we're going to go on to see is that he is also uh, the conqueror of evil. And we're going to read about this uh, this last final showdown here. It says this, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper to eat the flesh of Of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Here's the ideal. Evil is ultimately going to get extinguished from this planet. That's, that's good news. See, we can't even fathom that. We can't fathom what it will be like to live in a world without evil. None of us have ever breathed a breath of air that wasn't contaminated in some way with evil, with temptation, with corruption. But the promise and the hope and the expectation is that the way things are now is not the way they're always going to be or ultimately going to be. Evil has an expiration date. And the day will come when Jesus, the conquering king, will put an end to it. So we see for one last time this beast. We've seen him throughout Revelation. We've seen him all throughout scripture, actually. He's the symbol of these idolized kingdoms throughout the world, throughout the course of world history, along with the false prophet, these false teachings that deceive people into making nations and rulers and turning them into objects of worship. And in this scene, they're both captured. They're both thrown into the lake of fire, never to be heard from again. Done. And then there's the armies of the earth who have followed the beast into the battle. And it says, they get slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Now, that is a pretty gory picture, isn't it? Right? This is kind of another one of those parts of Revelation, like, all right, here it is. Let's deal with this especially that part about the birds, you know? Like, that is kind of creepy. (laughs) Keep this in mind, though. The sword comes out of Jesus' mouth, right? We've already seen this in Revelation. That is a word picture. It's a Revelation word picture for the Word of God. The truth that we know is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And The idea is that it is the truth, God's truth, that tears through the lies. And the idea is that for those whose lives are built on lies, they're going to be undone by the truth. They are going to be undone by the reality of who Jesus is and what the truth about him is. And that is why it's so critical today and every day to be building our lives upon truth. so Jesus is going to return. He's going to conquer evil. He's going to do it on the the national level. He's going to do it on the level of power structures. But he doesn't stop there. He's going to keep on going. And the righteous one is going to turn to the ultimate source of evil and bring him to justice. Next, just keep on reading. It says, "Um, Then I saw the angel... "'Coming down from heaven and holding in his hand "'the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. "'And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, "'who is the devil and Satan, "'and bounds him for a thousand years "'and threw him into the pit "'and shut it and sealed it over him "'so that he might not deceive the nations any longer "'until the thousand years were ended. "'After that, he must be released for a while. "'And then I saw thrones and seated on them "'were those to whom authority to judge was committed.' And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a 1,000 years. And when the 1,000 years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sands on the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, another scene of justice taking place at another level, if you remember Again, we're going to do some kind of review here because we're getting to the end of this book. Back in chapter 12, Satan, the dragon, had been overpowered and booted out of heaven, and he arrived onto our planet in a rage, it says, because he knew that his time was short. What we're reading here today marks the moment when his time runs out. And so the same thing that happened in heaven is going to happen on earth. And once again, we see there's no contest. There is no contest here. The dragon, the deceiver, the devil is seized and he's bound and he's locked up into a a prison for a thousand years. At that point, it says the nations will no longer be under his spell. And for a thousand years, this planet will operate the way that it was intended to run. And then it says at that point, the souls of those who had been martyred for Christ, the ones who refused to give in to the spirit of the age, to receive the mark of the beast, they rise up and they reign with Christ. All right, another review. Way back on the first week when we first started this, way back in Revelation chapter 1, we mapped out the path to victory for Christ followers. Jesus was introduced as the faithful witness, number one. Number two, the firstborn of the dead. And number three, the rulers of the kingdom of the earth. And we said, that's the mold. That's the path that he calls his people to live out our lives on, or the Mandalorian slogan, this is the way. This is the way we live out the Christian life. We live faithfully for Jesus, testifying to who he is, no matter what. And the idea is that that if that leads to our death, then just like it did for Jesus, the grave was not the end of Jesus. It wasn't the end of his story, and it's not the end of our stories either. And just like Jesus, what it does is that it leads us to the ultimate victory. We call that cruciform living, living sacrificially. This is how all Christ followers are called to live, testifying to Jesus no matter what. So here's the thing. If the here and now is all there is, that way of life is stupid. It is absolutely absurd. It's ridiculous, right? We can't say enough about it, but if it leads to what we see here in this passage, if indeed it leads to victory, if it leads to rising and reigning with Christ, then faithful obedience in the present tense, it makes perfect sense. It makes all the sense in the world. Here's the point. If we're not living our lives with a vision that extends beyond the here and now, if we're not living out our lives with a vision that extends into eternity, there's just absolutely no way we're going to live faithfully. We will compromise. We need that kind of vision. So at the end of the thousand years, Satan gets released. I can speculate about this, but I cannot give you a good answer. I have no idea why that happens this way. God has some kind of reason for it. um, But what we see is upon that, the world devolves once again right back to where it had been. The devil deceives the nations. Once again, he gathers them for battle, and the whole scene is reminiscent of of Ezekiel, this Old Testament book with the uh, nations of Gog and Magog. And then once again, it seems as though this is culminating. This is turning into some kind of grand climactic contest, except it doesn't in the space of a single sentence the devil gets thrown into his final destination, the lake of fire, never to be heard from again. And with that, the reign of evil is over forever. Evil has an expiration date. But there's still one last justice issue that needs to get resolved to wrap this up. It's been dealt with on the structural level, on the spiritual level, Lastly and finally, it gets addressed on the personal level. Here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found in them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. that all roads lead to Rome. See, Revelation kind of updates that to fit into the ultimate reality. That is that all roads lead to the throne. See, there is this divine appointment set when all of humanity will stand before creator God. It makes the point here that this is an inescapable appointment. Even death will not excuse you from this moment, each and every individual will be brought back to life and stand before the Lord. And the books are gonna get open on that day, it says, and, 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 and all the charges, all the evil, all the wrongs that have been done on a personal level are gonna get addressed. They're gonna get settled. Justice is gonna be done, and each person will give an account and answer for what they've done See, that's just, that's just simply justice. That's justice. That's doing the right thing, which the righteous king has to do. It's a part of his character. And this is where we start to squirm and we start to get uneasy because we all love justice up to the point where it starts impacting us personally. And it does. The great white throne of judgment, it cannot be escaped but the good news is that it can be endured. The way to endure it, it says, is by knowing that your name is written in the the Lamb's Book of Life. And so the most key critical question of existence is what is that Lamb's Book of Life? What do I have to do to get my name in that? The Lamb's Book of Life. This is this is something that the first important thing to understand about it is that you can't do enough to earn your way to get your name in that book. There's no way to do that. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But you see, that's the whole reason why Jesus came. That's the whole reason why he died. He did it so our names could be described, inscribed Not by our works, not by doing enough good things, but by grace, by trusting in his good work and living our lives under his rule and reign. Because there on the cross, he took the punishment that we deserved. And out of love, he did everything that had to be done so our final destination can be with God. And so the question that I have is do you have that hope? Do you have that confidence? That's that's the whole point of this. It's not to scare. It's to make us aware so we can know and live with that assurance, with that hope and that expectation that my judgment day has already been settled. It was taken care of at the cross. Jesus paid it. And the God of justice is satisfied with the sacrifice that he made. But you see, we also see here that uh, this day of of consummation is also gonna be a day of separation. And for those who choose to persist with the illusion of autonomy, with, with the refusal to acknowledge that as created beings, they're accountable to the creator who live continually in independence and shake their fist at God that decision gets solidified and they end up getting what they want. And what they want is what they deserve. An eternal existence apart from God, apart from the God from whom all blessings flow. And that existence by definition is an existence filled with torment, with anguish, with misery, with emptiness, and with isolation. Or as C.S. Lewis says, a freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into affinity. This is what is at stake. And ultimately, what we come to understand here, what Revelation reveals, is that when the dust of human history finally settles, Jesus is the last man standing. He's actually sitting, he's reigning on his throne. It's not going to be the kings. It's not going to be the leaders. It's not going to be the powers of evil. It's not going to be the spiritual adversaries. It's Jesus, the rightful ruler of this planet. He is going to do what's right. He will always do what is right. And the day is coming when the right thing to do is for him to clean house. And when that time comes, he will. For us, we get the privilege of surrendering today freely to the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave everything so we could be under his rule and reign. He rules in our hearts and we say in faith and expectation, Lord, come quickly because we're continuing to struggle down here in this broken down world that needs to get set straight again. No one else can do it. You promise to, and you will, and we wait.